Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Garden Better, the new podcast from Better Homes and Gardens. This is our second episode where we bring you information about all things gardening with me, Roger Fox, and my co-partner, Jenny Dillon. Hi, Jen. Hi, Roger. So this week, in our second episode, we're going to look at one of the most common challenges faced by gardeners, which is shade, and give you the lowdown on autumn feeding and fertilising to get the garden in tip-top shape. We'll also chat to horticulturist Matthew Carroll a bit later about ways to save water in the garden, which is always an important topic. And later on, Jenny's going to check in with Milton Black, Australia's favourite astrologer for his tips on gardening by the moon. Over the years I've been in the gardening media, one of the most common questions I get asked is which plants will grow in shaded areas? And that's because all gardens feature at least some shade, whether it be cast by trees or shadows from the house or other neighbouring buildings. Is it something you find you contend with, Jen, in your garden? All year. All year round. All year round. I'm surrounded by medium-density apartment blocks. Right. That weren't there when the house was built. And there's one part of my garden that gets no sun for at least six months of the year. Wow. So I've had to really learn how to put plants in my garden that love the shade. Yeah, and adapt. And, of course, that's one of the biggest, most important points to first make. Don't struggle with shaded areas by planting unsuitable plants that really need more sun. Bite the bullet. Look for the species that grow in shade and love shade and that's your building block because otherwise you're totally wasting your time, don't you think? Absolutely. But, you know, it's not hard no, it's because not. all you have to do is think what grows in rainforests. Of course. What grows in the tropics because a lot of those are um, under, under shade anyway. Of and you can get some amazing plants out of the rainforests and, and the tropics that survive south. Absolutely. And in fact, I thought, seeing we're talking shade, what people always want to know is what are your best plant tips? So let's do a bit of a to and fro. I'll kick it off. I love using bromeliads in areas that are dry shade because I don't need lots of moisture. They're great for that. If it's damp shade, I'm big on ferns, which yes. just seem an obvious Absolutely. fit and look obvious. fabulous year round. And yeah. they're not all green. There's green and white ones and there's interesting foliage tinges. So. Yes. Um, when it comes to ground covers, I have a few favourite shade. In fact, shade gardening can be fun because some of my favourite plants are shade lovers. Um, so some of mine are plectranthus, which is a little creeping plant mm-hmm. with uh, with flowers in autumn. I love liriope, which is the grassy plant yes. with mo flowers, great in the shade. And I love uh, mondo grass. What do you have any faves for sort of ground covered areas? Yes. It's the Australian native violet. Oh, it's fabulous too. Oh, it just loves the shade and it loves the moisture. And yes. it's just, you know, like if you give them shade, you give them lots of water, the, all the little flowers just pop up. It's like they're giving you a standing ovation. They're fabulous and they flower freely in shade, which not all shade plants do. do yeah. they? They're really and, good value. And also they spread so quickly. I've, You know, you can put down one little plant and suddenly this whole yard is covered with it because they, if it's shady, if it's moist, is this no stopping? Them? You're right. They're such good value. All right. Now, I'm thinking of some of my other favourites. And moving into shrubs, 
One of my favourite shrubs for shaded areas is Indian hawthorn. I don't know if you grow it, but it, it, it's there's a white flowering version and a pink flowering version. Yeah. They're as hardy as anything. They're almost unkillable. They seem happy in all sorts of shade, certainly dry shade. They're wonderful. Others are Camellia sasanqua, which is an obvious one for shade, one of my faves, and a plant called Indian sage. I don't know if you know that, Aranthemum, mm. which uh, gets great big blue flowers in the spring, but again does really well in sage uh, in um, shade. Sorry. And the other one, of course, is Buxus, which is one of my yes. faves. Too. But I think also with the Camellia sasanqua, you can do so much more with it. And I just love it when it's a spalliard. Oh, it looks brilliant, a spalliard, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Have and you done your own or have you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time. I know. No, I'm the same. It is I've... a time-consuming thing to do, a spalliard. It's, um... I bought an espalliard citrus, already a espalliard, I have right. to admit, on a lattice. And it's been gorgeous. But that's but... going to need a sunny wall. Yes, it needs a sunny wall. Of course it does. Yes. And we're talking shade. Um, now, um, what about building soil up in shaded areas? That's one of the tricks too, especially if it's in an area under trees, isn't it? You've really yeah. got to improve the soil first. Do you agree? With a lot of them, you do have to. It's really, really important because you're not getting the, the amount of activity happening under the soil, all those microorganisms running around doing the things that soils do. And there's a competition from tree roots too, yes. isn't there, if you're under yes. trees? Yeah. yeah. So one of the other things I always do, especially under trees, is put a whole lot of uh, cow manure and just fork it in very lightly and that improves the soil. And then I'll often inc- raise the soil height so that you've got some planting area above and sort of put in a, a good soil mix and, and uh, then what you're planting into. And I'd always recommend small pots so you've got small rooted plants. Um, you're planting into a nice improved mix which will stay a lot moister and it sits on top of the ground really. So that's one of my hints. Yep, absolutely, Roger. And look, the other thing I wanted to mention, I think people often don't realise this, is as long as you live in a frost-free area, and that's the important thing, one of the great groups of plants for shaded areas are actually the ones we consider indoor plants because, of course, all of them evolved outside and mostly in uh, foresty situations where they uh, evolved in shade. And I have great success with, uh, with indoor plants. And some of my favourites there are Syngonium, which is also known as Arrowhead because uh, the leaves are very much shaped like an arrowhead. It's wonderful outside as a shady ground cover. Have you ever used it, Jen? Yeah, I have. I've used it inside a lot, actually. It's uh-huh. really gorgeous. It's great inside. It's wonderful outside yeah. in shade as long as you're frost-free. Um, other indoor plants which work really well are the polka dot plant, Hypoestes is the mm-hmm. botanical name. It grows really well outside in the shade of trees and in quite dry shade too. Have you tried it? No, I haven't, but one of my favourites is the old um, cast iron plant. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, the Aspidistra. Yes. Yes, of yes. course. And, and that's inside out, but inside it, just anywhere you plant, put it. It's just just you can't kill it. It's fabulous. No, you're right. It's another indoor plant that's moved outside. I've seen whole mass plantings of that under trees, yeah. and it is hard to kill because it's very drought hardy. It seems to like yes. dry shade, which is a challenge. And they've got those lovely curvaceous leaves as well. You know, they're just sort of. I know they're beautiful. They were once considered a Victorian parlour plant. If you ever I look know. at sepia photos, there's I an aspidistra in the corner and of every, every single every Edwardian or Victorian every household. Photo. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, the other one I'll just mention quickly. I like is the aluminium plant, Pilea, and the leaves are green but with little splashes of silver. Again, really common as an indoor plant. People often have it in the living room in a pot. It's quite good outside as well. Again, in these shady areas we're talking about, as long as you're not in a frosty zone, uh, and a lot of Australia's frost-free, and it grows really well as well. So 
That's one other hint for listeners. If they're looking for plants for shaded areas, go to the indoor plant section of nurseries and uh, and their favourite hardware stores and see what they can find in the indoor section for those shaded areas. So hopefully we've given a bit of inspiration. Don't think of shade as a problem in the garden. Think of it as an opportunity because you can have some really wonderful effects. Absolutely. Rog, the calendar's just ticked over into March and that means autumn's here. Yeah, even though it doesn't feel like it everywhere in the country, it's still quite summery in lots of different parts, but it's definitely autumn. So whatever the weather, autumn is a great time to give your garden an all-over feeding. Um, This is really, really important this time of the year because it replenishes the the nutrients that, that um, that have been used up during summer and it also helps them build up strength for winter. And this is when we get to the subject of NPK. Absolutely. The old nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium trio, which is on all the fertilisers. But I agree with you. Autumn's a time where you have to think about feeding because lots of people just think it's spring only. And by the time you get to autumn, the last feed for the garden was six months ago. So it really needs help at this time of year. And um, I don't know how you approach it, but I believe in using a good granular fertiliser at this time of year. It's one of the times of year where I like to get an organic-based manure, chuck it into a wheelbarrow and uh, take it right around the garden and put it on everything. What's your approach, Jen? I do it in a bucket. Oh, okay. The bucket approach. (laughs) The bucket approach. I don't have a wheelbarrow and I've got too many hills in my garden. Sorry. But, you know, there's different ways of of doing the feeding. You know, you've got your your lawn that needs feeding this time of the year and your garden beds, and they both need different types of food, don't they? Yes, absolutely. And then you've got potted plants as well. As um, Just to give an idea of my regime, yeah, I use a manure-based fertiliser on the garden beds, which you can spread whether using a bucket or a wheelbarrow. I um, Then also around particular plants, I use some one of the controlled release or slow release kind of granule fertilisers. Do you find they're useful? I find often they're a, a good balance of nutrients for particular plants. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And then moving on from that, I always give my potted plants a good feeding at this time of year and uh, with the slow-release types again, but looking for a potted plant formulation, which you can get everywhere. In fact, there's so many fertiliser products out there, you really need to read the label, don't you, when you're buying? That's that's one of my things. Always read the back of the of the bag that you're getting. But also with potted plants, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, even though you might be replenishing the nutrients, it's not enough and you actually have to repot your pot plants every couple of years. Absolutely. That is a really good hint. You really do, don't you? Take them out, shake a lot of the old potting mix off yep. and put them into some some nice fresh stuff. Yeah. And you find also the potting mixes now often have fertiliser already contained in them so it makes that job a little bit easier. Yep. So that's definitely right. And you're right about lawn too. It is the time to do lawns. And again, I'm a fan of using a granular lawn fertiliser at this time of year because over summer I think we often cheat and just grab the hose end spray ones for a quick green up which is lovely, but the slow-release ones last a lot longer and feed the lawn up for winter. And you don't want to be going out in the middle of winter to be feeding your lawn. It's too cold. It's not the right time. Also, I know you love your native plants. Do you have a special regime for them? I'm only thinking that some natives don't like conventional fertilisers. I don't like too much phosphorus in the mix. No, that's because Australia's soil is just so... Um, Depleted, really. Absolutely. But a lot of people think that all native plants have to have the special native plant feed, and that's not true. It's only the proteaceae families. It is, of course. So that's your um, grevilleas and banksias, that sort of thing. Yes, of course. And because they've they've developed their own mechanism for coping for the lack of um, um, phosphorus. That's true. And apart from that group of plants, the proteaceae, most natives you can 
treat as you would all the rest of the garden. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. they're fine. All right. So that's one of the jobs to think about in autumn, feeding. It's not an unpleasant thing to do. The weather's a bit cooler at this time of year and you've got things set up for the rest of the, the winter and you won't have to think about it till uh, spring. So get feeding. One of the vital ingredients that goes into any garden is water. It's what makes the whole thing tick. And that means as gardeners, we've got a special responsibility to use it wisely. And given that we live in Australia, use as little as possible. Well, joining me today to talk all things water saving is Matt Carroll, a horticultural presenter and educator who also works with the Nursery and Garden Industry Association of Australia. Hey, Matt. Hey, Roger. How are you? Good. Now, listen, let's talk about water restrictions first up. Yes. Because these do exist in many parts of Australia, although you might not think so in other parts that are really wet. Um, But it's always uh, important for home gardeners wherever they live to know the rules that apply in their particular areas, isn't it? Indeed. And uh, obviously when water restrictions aren't in our face and they've been, you know, heavily legislated against, you Mm. know, people doing the wrong thing, we've got to um, keep them in mind, really. So Mm. basic things that came into play. Um, For example, uh, in Sydney with trigger water nozzles being the standard of what you have to have, uh, people have sort of gone back and digressed back to some of those uh, lesser technologies. Which Yeah, it gets forgotten over time. Exactly. That's the problem. That's the problem. And also the, uh, the use of drip irrigation systems and other things. You've really got to know what's legal. And in country towns, it's often very different again. Yeah, so well, you can find b- between different local areas and, you know, their water sources can vastly differentiate in terms of the um, of ability to use water and, and, and what timings and, um, yeah. Of course. And just out of interest, the Nursery and Garden Industry Association, which are national, of course, yes. they play a role with the different water authorities in any capital city and in any area to make sure the water restrictions work for gardeners? Is uh, yeah, so it's, it's more across being, uh, across being across threats, really, so as well as looking at things like biosecurity issues that, you know, pests and weeds and problems like that. Water is obviously such a key ingredient in a successful garden so um, making sure that uh, with any things that do happen uh, in terms of regulations against water consumption that you know people know that they still can have gardens and still be having you know quite viable outdoor spaces. Of course by using it the right way. So there's all sorts of ways you can save water in a garden um, different products and different approaches so let's talk about a few I thought we'd start with wetting agents, soil wetting agents. We horticultural media people often mention them and you probably mention them when you're presenting on stage to gardeners but a lot of gardeners still don't get them. They're just uh, they're just a, a product which helps the soil absorb the water better, really, aren't they? Exactly. So people also confuse them with 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 things like water crystals, which was something that you know it, it initially you talk about wetting agents, and they they assume, assume that's what you're talking about. Two very Whereas, different products, really. Exactly. Mm. So with the with the wetting agents, you're mainly talking about trying to get the moisture into the soil and also uh, allow it to hold it better. So everyone's probably had the instance when they've been out watering in their garden and just seen that water shed from the surface. Mm. Uh, this is more and or less pots as well, and pots especially. Pot. Yeah. yeah. So, and m- most of these products also, if they have used them in the past, only uh, are effective for about uh, six months. So, so you have to re-apply. The, the reapplication, even if you know that potting mix which you bought might state that it has wetting agents in it, it's not an indefinite product there. Yeah, of course. So, for listeners, if they haven't explored the delights of wetting agents, they're quite easy to apply. They come in liquid forms, which you mix up in a watering can and pour on, and they come in granular forms as well. You can the, get the granular, and it's yeah. you know a lot, a lot of some people prefer that. And if Easier to, to apply for a large garden, don't you think? Spreading, yeah, especially yeah. if you're running through spreaders and it could be that they, they coincide with when they're 
fertilising their lawns and doing those sort of tasks where they can actually blend them in. And some fertilisers mm. even have wedding agents. Well, that's blended true. And some potting them. mixes do. And too, potting mixes, so yeah. So, um, so there's certainly something worth uh, considering. Now, thinking of other things you can use, um, there's the irrigation issue. I think the preference is still for drip systems rather than spray systems. Isn't drip it? systems, yeah. definitely. A lot of those irrigation technologies that come out of the drier parts of the world, they're obviously um, uh, drip irrigation is one of those that's, yeah, in terms of efficiency and not losing as much water to, to evaporation, that's a, that's a great one. But as well as those, so we have sort of had a migration from from a lot of those, you know, knocker sprays and, and, and impact sprinklers that people used in the past where you might lose a lot to wind. Um, whereas now with the drippers, the new technology probably to implement is also with the, the, the systems behind that. So the automated systems that actually look at the weather. Uh, a lot of people have, you know, automatic irrigation that might come on even if it is raining and that's definitely a, a space where we could be saving water. Well, that's um, true. And those systems are available at a domestic level. Now, once it was very much commercial so. horticulture people, we can get them in home systems. Indeed. So yeah. the, um, there's actually some great technologies that were even born out of Australia that are now used internationally in terms of looking and they sync in weather data internationally. Wow. Um, and they, they, they're quite... Um, you know, successful in, in reducing your water use, looking at those climatic uh, effects as well as yeah, precipitation. Absolutely. So they're worth exploring at a more basic level if you can't get your head around that or you don't have a wonderful irrigation store nearby. Um, even things like tap timers, tap I mean, they're timers. the most basic of all. But if you know you've set it for 20 minutes and don't forget it, that's a huge way of Well, people are them. forgetful and they do often, of you course. know, put, put the sprinkler on and it could be a nice, you know, summertime ritual where you, you, you flick the sprinkler on and uh, go about your other activities. But um, it is something that obviously soils can only take up so much moisture so you sort of um, you get you know, to a wastage point don't you overfilling your cup yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> and also just one other thing to, to cover on this theme is the best time of day to water I always think this is a practicality issue because if you're at work all day you often yes. don't have the choice but the idea is not the middle of the day it's morning or evening and on the whole morning seems to be preferred by most specialists yeah so you with the, with a lot of the evening irrigation it sort of comes into some of the other horticultural problems of, 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 of soil pathogens and, yeah, and, and, of and, 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 and yeah, diseases that can mm. come through. But in terms of uh, watering, ideally in the morning, now if you do have a system, a timer or whatever, it could just be as simple as going and, and, and setting that off in the morning or perhaps a nice little morning ritual out there with a cup of coffee as you go and inspect your... Uh, Inspect your plants. <laughs> yeah, I prefer the evening version when you have the glass of wine, but that's, that's okay. Probably. You can do it either way. It's all good. Um, and another really important water saving theme, and another basic one, is mulching, which we've talked about for years in the media. Do you think the whole mulch message has got through? Gardeners sort of using it as they should. Do you reckon? They, yeah, I've, I definitely think people have improved. And if you look at some of the prior, prior to the previous water restrictions, um, just some of the data coming through. Original water wastage that was what was out there, and how much that was reduced with the with this education going through. But uh, mulching's, I think, something that's definitely um, evolved. And people are aware of, you know, not only for the keeping the moisture into in your soils, but also uh, the weeds. And as people are a lot more uh, got got less time on their hands to be getting out and about in the garden, but uh, also those mulches that break down and, and form that organic matter, which also helps hold uh, moisture, moisture in your soil. So, yeah. like pea straw and, and sugar pea cane straw, sugar cane, all of those types of mulches. Of yeah, because yeah. you again sort of building up your soils um, and essentially giving yourselves a, a bigger cup to fill when you do water. Yeah, the other thing I'll just observe about mulch is the wisdom. You 
used to be that they went on very thickly. It was often recommended 10 centimetres. And I noticed research of recent years has said they don't need to be as thick as that, which probably comes as a relief because trying to apply 10 centimetre depths of stuff is hard work and it is harder then for moisture to get through, rain and things. So they tend yep. to recommend four or five centimetres at the most. Yeah, and you so. normally find you get a nice, you know, those, especially those loosens and sugar canes, you find they get a nice little, they bind together beautifully and you can, you can get that lovely soil sweat underneath them, that, yeah. that, that moisture which is really worthwhile when you're growing. And the moisture stays in which saves you future work watering. Um, and look, just one final issue, perhaps the most obvious way to save water in a garden is to choose plants which don't need a lot of it and to think about where you place the more thirsty plants within a landscape. So that's, I guess, an obvious theme, but it means if you're in dry times, it's fine to plant your containers with succulents, perhaps rather than petunias and thirsty things, and it's a good idea to uh, to, to put more thirsty plants in cooler parts of the garden and things like that. Is, is that something that gets messaged from the nursery association? Yeah, definitely, and, and, and in terms of also looking at within your plantings, they, they have different needs through their lifetime as well. So uh, that initial you know planting time, you're obviously going to, whilst they put out their, their roots, you're going to be requiring a bit more water, whereas that can be brought back later on through the whole thing. But, yeah, in terms of... Uh, working out some of those high need plant materials, putting them in those more perhaps less exposed spaces, or because uh, and and quite often you find completely the wrong plant planted in a you know something that prefers a shade, put in a full sun spot, and people yeah. trying to keep it constantly hydrated just to keep yep. it alive. So Yeah, I always think hydrangeas are a good example of that. Yeah. I think the word actually means in, in, in Greek water vessel <laughs> yeah. and they're often placed in a spot of in full sun where you keep having to water them so that the leaves stay, uh, you know, sort of robust and they look good. So placement's important. And if you've got a really hot northerly or westerly exposed area, go for I mean, there's great drought-hardy plants these days, like the succulents. Um, yeah. And in dry shade, there's things like bromeliads and stuff. So there's yeah. lots of options. And even moving in through colour as people, you know, we did go through a bit of a, a a look into plants that were perhaps more foliage you know, through water restrictions of old. Of course, Things yeah. like salvias and all that are, are great drought-hardy plants that people can consider as a, a beneficial insect um, you attractant. Know, attractant as well as And still give, give you lots of colour as well. Yeah, so there, there are options out there, even through succulents, beautiful sedums, of and through autumn, and yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah lots yeah, of colour. Lots of unthirsty plants. Well, I always think as gardeners we've got a sort of packed with uh, with our water authorities that we have to use this uh, this rare product very sparingly and be careful with it. So good to talk about it today and thanks for all those insights, Matt. Thank you. Hi, Milton. How are you? Very well, Jenny. We're going to talk about transplanting now by the moon. Yes. Well, the best time to transplant in this month of March would be really on the 22nd, the 23rd and the 24th. Now, the reason for that is because the moon is in Libra and Scorpio on those days. Those are very fertile, but the moon is in the last or coming up to the last quarter of the moon and that's when the moon is waning and when you wane the moon it's all for the b- below the ground so this is where your carrots your onions your beetroots and, and that are grown but also you're 
transplant. So if you've got that palm tree that mum and dad have bought or the wife's bought and it's now growing a little bit bigger and you say, oh, that's going to be a little too big for where we are, you can actually transplant that, dig a hole twice the size of the actual base of the tree, lift it out and transplant it on those days to the 22nd, 23rd, 24th. Now, if you've got plants in a pot and, and the pot is just overloaded with root growth, you can actually transfer it into a bigger pot during that period as well and break the roots a little bit before you put it in with a good mixture, a potting mix, and transplant on that, uh, that period of the 22nd, 23rd and 24th and you're going to have a beautiful new pot of flowers or vegetables if, so I was going to ask, what about what about seedlings? Is it a good time for that as well? Yes, yes, very much indeed. And also lawns, absolutely perfect for lawns on that day. You can aerate your lawns uh, throughout uh, the first part of March, of course. And then if you're planting a new lawn, you couldn't wish for a better time than the 22nd, 23rd and 24th of March. And uh, don't forget to fertilise a little bit too when you're doing that period yeah, as course. well. Yeah. But uh, but after that date, when you're going through to the end of the month, this is where the moon on the last quarter going through to the end of the month, you don't plant anything because the moon is really dark at that stage and there's no growth in the lunar uh, aspect at all. So that's when you get stuck in and do your composting again, repair your garden beds, get your seed beds ready and uh, get everything ready for the next uh, day after the new moon in uh, April to start planting above ground crops again. What about if we get back to the palm trees, you know, you've done your transplanting. Any care after that, according to the moon calendar? Yes, well, it's good. Uh, Slow-release fertilisers, just a little touch, because palms don't really like a lot of uh, fertiliser. What I like is give them a touch of sea salt. That's the best thing to do. And there's some good products of uh, seaweed mixture and a little touch of the old sea salt and a good deep watering, and the palms will love you. I find I do my palms near the beach with nitrogen. So I I have put more nitrogen into my palms, for example, and they come up nice and green and nice and healthy. But you've got to be very careful. You just... Put, you just don't put natural nitrogen on. You've got to have it in a mixture form, which you can get from your uh, garden centre and places like that or bunnies or whatever. Seaweed acts as a wonderful tonic to the roots, which is, after doing some transplanting, they're at their most vulnerable, aren't they? Oh, yes, very, very much indeed. But you've got to be careful too. Now, I made a big mistake in my early days with the uh, tree, tree palms. I overdosed them a little bit on uh, seaweed type of mixture, yeah. and they all went brown on me. They didn't die, but they went brown, yeah. Not enough tonic and too much gin, perhaps. (laughs) I like that one, Jenny. Just got to be a little bit careful with palms that you don't overdo them with sea salt. It's very easy to do to stand there and talk away and have a can in one hand and spray in the other. But I think it's most important to treat them like babies because they are beautiful trees and uh, they take a, a long time to grow and of course consequently they're very expensive at the same time so you don't want to waste them. Sea salt should be put in the garden wherever you can and uh, especially to around your, your bulbs to give them a little bit of a, a sea salt once you've planted them as well but lawns too don't uh, hesitate to put a nice fertiliser on your lawns and there's plenty of uh, mixture of nitrogen and general blending of uh, fertilisers that you can buy at uh, the agriculture companies is the best way to buy buy a sack of this stuff, take it home, put it in your bin and then just spread it out as you go but uh, in regards to March, I think from the 21st 
uh, through to the um, 27th. That's the best time for below-ground crops, transplanting, and from the 29th through to the end of the month to the 31st, just fertilise, spray, and uh, general maintenance, I would say, in your garden. Fantastic. That's really great. Thanks, Milton. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. You're most welcome, Jen. Thanks for listening. I've had a great time doing it. Have you, Jenny? I've had a great time too, Roger. So we invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you too, so please take a moment to rate and review the show. We'll be back in a fortnight with a new episode. See you then. See you. 